The first reading is from 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 6 to 17. If you're following that in the Church Bible, that is on page 1,161. It's 1,161. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he doesn't know how. All by itself, the soil produces corn. First the stalk, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. As soon as the corn is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet, when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the words to them as much as they could understand. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. 
But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Do please take your seats while Carol comes to speak to us. Just begin with a prayer. Holy Spirit, speak to us today. Change our hearts and our minds and make us new creations. Amen. So when I used to be in your position, sitting in the pews, Sunday after Sunday, I used to get really frustrated. Have we got feedback? Is that... Are we okay? Sorry. I used to get really, really frustrated because I realized there was very rarely, if ever, talks on the really gritty issues that are there for everyone to see in the Bible. Give us something to chew on, I used to think. I even used to misquote Paul quite regularly when he talks about giving people milk and not meat. Give me some meat, I used to say. Talk to me about the stuff we don't understand. Invite me to wonder and to think. Well, I can now tell you I'm eating my words because it's me up here. And I would rather not be tackling the difficult and meaty subjects. I would rather not be challenging us. But sometimes you get passages like these and it's simply unavoidable. And while I was praying about this talk for today, I felt that the Lord was saying some stuff to me that I needed to say. So here goes. The phrase, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, does come to mind. I want to invite you to wonder with me. Part of our faith is living with messy edges and with tension, working out what our faith means in our own daily lives and allowing the Holy Spirit to compel us and to convict us where necessary and to assure us we're in God's love. We need to work with that tension and to love each other through it anyway. To understand the scriptures in all the urgency and power that they're written, we may need to listen to some surprising voices and make some detours to visit people that the world usually passes by. These passages we had read are complex and they are difficult to understand. But at the core, Paul and Jesus in Mark are asking us where our focus is. Is our focus on our our work, our jobs? Is it on our family? Is it on our home, our book collection, our record collection, our sport? Or is it on our community? Paul, in 2 Corinthians, is quite adamant. He shows us by his words, and I think more importantly by his actions, that there is no choice. If you're a Christian, living with your eyes focused on Jesus is the only way to live. If we look at some of what he says, you can follow it either in the Bibles or in the the pew sheets. We live by faith in verse 7. Verse 9, we make it our goal to please him. Verse 13, if we're out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. 
Verse 14, for Christ's love compels us. Verse 15, shall I I go on? (laughs) That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. I bet you can find one or two more. Paul, more than most, had really good reason to become less committed than he was. Last week, Pads and Stephen both detailed all the torture, all the imprisonments and the threats that Paul had lived with. And this letter to Corinth was written because the church had been infiltrated by false teachers who were challenging both Paul's personal integrity and his authority as an apostle. Because he had announced a change in his plans, with the result that he would now pay the Corinthians one long visit instead of two short visits, these, these false witnesses, these adversaries, were asserting that his word could not be trusted. They were also saying that he was not a genuine apostle and that he was pocketing the money that they as a church had collected for the poverty-stricken Christians who were struggling in Jerusalem. Many of us at that point might well have walked away and given up, said, this really isn't going to work. But Paul refocuses himself and them on Christ. He encourages them not to live as the world lives, but to put everything in proper perspective. The world, big jobs, position, power, authority, all come under the lordship of Christ. Everything else is a distraction. Paul is encouraging them to walk to their salvation, to understand what Christ did on the cross, to acknowledge their new standing as people of God. All bickering, squabbling, vying for position had no place in Christ's kingdom. Living as a new creation was and is the number one priority. Paul gives all he can because of the Messiah's love. Which, and he says that in verse 14. Shouldn't we be doing the same? And in our Mark passage, Jesus seems to try, try to make life difficult for some with the parables. We're told that he only talked in parables to some people, and he only gave the explanation to his disciples. What's going on? This, it is actually, I think, a a consistent kingdom principle. We're called to live life as if nothing else but Jesus and his kingdom mattered. And, as Jesus did, constantly tell others about Christ and to constantly love others. But only a few will respond. Only a few would follow Jesus to hear the explanation And only a few, however many hundreds we may invite, only a few will respond. Jesus is helping his disciples and us to understand that it should never stop us telling people. But it may mean we invite people time and time again, and only a few will respond. I... um, I had two friends, one of whom I was absolutely sure was this far from making a commitment to Christ. And she had a friend who was also my friend. But I thought, I know, I'll invite them both to Alpha because if I invite just this one who I'm absolutely certain is about to make a commitment, she might not come on her own. 
So I need to invite them both, and then they'll both come. And it's a win-win situation, really. Strangely, the person who I thought was about to fall on her knees and say, Carol, I want to give my life to Christ, I've seen the light, attended one, maybe two of the Alpha sessions. My other friend attended almost all of them and is now making a commitment and describing herself as a woman of faith and is praying and is asking God for help in her situation. What do I know? (laughs) But, you know, it's an example of just keep asking, just keep inviting people, even if you think they're a million miles away. The Holy Spirit knows a lot more than we do, thankfully. Jesus, in the parable of the mustard seed, is telling us, like Paul, that as we try to live witnessing to Christ, what we offer in sincerity is multiplied by him, much as Paul was saying. The despised and rejected Christ could be seen as an insignificant seed that grew into this huge mustard tree, the the Christian faith that is here today. And we ourselves may feel that we are small and insignificant, and yet we're capable of being used greatly for Christ's service. There is actually no limit to what we can achieve when we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us. I have a terrible habit of reading several books, and I'm going to introduce you to two of them. I I read many. I have one in the bedroom, one downstairs, one in the car, one one at work. I I have them all over the place, and I read a bit of each. One of the books I'm reading at the moment is by Barbara Taylor Bradford. Now, I can't recommend it to you because it's deeply unsettling. The title is called Leaving Church, and it's, uh, it's not a good book to read. And also, I have to say, some of her... Some of her theology might give the, the uh, hard, hard-dyed evangelicals a few twitches. It's, um, it's a little bit challenging. She's quite controversial about her Christianity. But one of the things I took away from that book is that she does talk about her encounter with native Indian spirituality. They don't have any written scriptures at all. But if you ask a Native American how to pray, they will invite you to sit and pray with them. If you ask them how to dance, they will invite you to dance with them. Their spirituality comes not from books, but from deep within them, from their lives, from their community. And I think in the West, we spend so much time in the theory, debating what each little thing means, and not enough time looking around us, being with people, and allowing the Spirit to dwell deeply within us, and for the Holy Spirit to speak to our actions. We need to see, look around us and see what God is doing on our community If we look up from our books and writings for a while, we might risk seeing more of Christ. It's easy to read about mission. I do it a lot. It's easy to feel inspired by the stories of great missionaries, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if we're spending all our time locked away in our houses, reading about what God is doing in Japan or Africa or China, We might miss the exciting and inspiring thing that's happening down the road. And we might miss having a conversation with someone who needs to hear about God's love. The gospel we read is deeply challenging. 
It turns the accepted way upside down. It's unsettling and provocative. Another one of the books I'm reading at the moment is Oscar Romero. I started this as a Lent book. It's going to take me at least a year because it is so, it's, it's life-changing. It's, um, this is extracts of his sermon. He was um, Archbishop of San Salvador, and he was uh, assassinated by the regime for his outspokenness on Christian issues. And he speaks very challengingly. And in one of his sermons, he thinks... He says, I think that we have greatly deformed the gospel. We have tried to live a very comfortable gospel without committing ourselves, but merely being pious and having a gospel we can be content with. I'm not trying to trap you into fear or into pointless action. Action is only worthwhile if it's guided by the Holy Spirit. It sounds really counterintuitive, but stepping out in faith is where freedom is to be found. Freedom is being in the center of Christ's love. And out of that place, we can then learn to love others. It's like Jesus' picture of the mustard tree in Mark's gospel, with his arms open wide so that others can land on the branches. There is judgment, of course, and we shouldn't shy away from it. Paul and Jesus, both in the passages, teach on judgment. I think the question is, do we, once we've grasped something of God's love, Jesus' sacrifice and the presence of the Holy Spirit, then keep it to ourselves and carry on behaving as if nothing has changed? Do we tell people that faith, like politics, is a private matter and say nothing? Do we stand by and watch while others are oppressed? Do we spend as if we could single-handedly deliver this country from recession while our brothers and sisters are struggling to find something to eat? One of the reasons Paul is so clear that he isn't bothered about what others think of him is because he knows he will be judged by Christ who gave his life on the cross for his and our wrongdoings at the end of time, as we all will. But we're not all expected to be Paul. We are expected, however, to use what we've been given. Strangely, it's about being all of what God has made us to be. It's about being everything, using all our gifts that God has given us. And in perfect freedom, Paul reminds us in verse 10, He, as we, will all be in front of Christ's throne and judged. Paul felt this freedom as he took risks, knowing the only one whose judgment of us really matters is Christ. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit to help us to grow from a tiny seed into a mustard tree. It's risky. We might, we probably will, get hurt. We might probably will get some things wrong. We might, probably will, have to stop doing one thing so we can better do another. And we may, probably will, lose some friends. It's scary and it's unpredictable, but it's worth remembering when we think we couldn't possibly do anything else well that Christ and Paul were both willing to take those risks. 
And often the least of all people were called in the Bible. We have Hannah, who was a woman without children. That, in the Jewish culture of the day, meant you were persona non grata. You were completely without honor to be a woman without a child. And she was presumed to be drunk by the priest Eli when she was praying, and yet God spoke to her. Ruth and Rahab were both mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. Miriam looks like a bystander in someone else's story until we realize that we wouldn't have Moses without her. It was her who taught the Israelites to worship, and then she led them in praising God. We've got Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist, who first recognized Christ. Mary herself, mother of Jesus, whose yes was a huge risk, and who went on, after watching her son die, to be instrumental in the early church. And I could go on. There's so many people who felt they were without status, who changed the course of history. Each one of these was a flawed, sometimes frightened human being who chose to put their trust not in the world, but in God, and who chose to dream with God of his kingdom. What if, just for a moment, we could dream with God about what we would like this world to be and what our part at St. Matthew's might be in that? And you might ask, how on earth do we start? Can I have the slide, please, Martin? I don't know if you can see this. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. How do we respond to social issues? How do we respond in love? Handy reference list. Male, love them. Female, love them. Unsure, love them. Gay, love them. Straight, love them. Unsure, love them. Addict, love them. Sober, love them. Believer, love them. Unbeliever, love them. Unsure, love them. Do you get, do you get, do you get that? <laughs> That's our response. That's how we reach people. Paul encourages everyone to look at others in the light of Jesus' love. And training the eye to look at things with faith and hope and love is not just a matter of Christian obedience. It's the way to overthrow prejudice and to see God's kingdom in unexpected places and people. There's some great imagery in the parable of the mustard seed. The description of birds nesting is a reference to Ezekiel 17, where the birds represent all the peoples of the earth. So what Jesus is saying here is that however small and insignificant you feel, however little you think you are doing, or however puny you feel your contribution to the kingdom is, if it's given in full commitment and with love, it can and will be used to bring God's kingdom forward. And if you're still in any doubt about that, if you can't see how the little you are able to do can possibly be used in an eternal, life-changing way, just watch this video. And the smallest domino is about five millimeters high and one millimeter thick. And I will carefully place it. And there are 13 dominoes. The largest domino, it weighs about 100 pounds. 
and it's more than a meter tall. Ready? Boom. That was 13 dominoes. If I had 29 dominoes, the last domino would be as tall as the Empire State Building. Thank you, Martin. Do you see what I'm saying there? That's a good reason to live for Christ and do our little bit, is it not? I want to leave you with one last thought for my reading uh, this morning from Deuteronomy 10. Although heaven and the heaven of heavens belong to the Lord your God, the earth with all that is in it, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your ancestors alone and chose you, their descendants after them, out of all the peoples as it is today. God chose you and he needs you to do your bit. I wonder if we can just spend a few minutes quietly asking the Holy Spirit to show us maybe what our little bit is today, maybe so we can go out or come to communion offering that little bit to God, maybe going out into the week determined to do that little bit. There's just a few minutes silence and I will finish in a moment or two. Father, thank you that the seeds we offer can grow into mustard trees. Thank you that you will draw people to us to nest as you've promised. Father, I pray over the coming days that you will show each one of us how we can be used for you. Show us what our little bit of kingdom building is. And Father, I pray that we might dwell in you. In Jesus' name, amen.